This is episode number 97 with Kevin Kelly. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. What is up, everyone? Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very excited about this interview with Kevin Kelly. And if you don't know who Kevin Kelly is, he's the founding executive editor of Wired Magazine, former editor, publisher of The Whole Earth Review. He's also been a writer, photographer, and a student of Asian and digital culture. He's got a number of books out there as well that we talk about. And I first learned about Kevin through Tim Ferriss. And he recently had Kevin on his his podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show, and did a three-part series with him, and I thought it was fascinating. And in this interview, we dive into different questions. So if you've already listened to that series with Tim, awesome. This is going to be completely different. And if you haven't listened to it yet, then make sure to go subscribe to The Tim Ferriss Show and check that out as well. But I'm very excited to, uh, to bring you Kevin today and in just a moment. But first, I want to ask you guys, if you're listening to this episode and if you listen to the show for a while, I want you to do me a favor. I want to do a little experiment. I want you to send this episode to one friend, just one friend who you think it could be inspiring for or uplift them. And I want you to email them and CC me in the email. So my email address that you can send it to is lewis at lewishouse.com. So again, find one friend you want to send this to, email them this, the link will be lewishouse.com slash 97, that's where the show notes will be in the episode, CC me in the email, I would love to know why you're sending it to them, the message you want them to get from this interview, so again, CC me and one friend with lewishouse.com slash 97, and uh, my email is lewis at lewishouse.com. Very excited to see how this experiment plays out. But without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into this interview with Kevin Kelly. Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatness podcast. Very excited about today's interview with the one and only Kevin Kelly. How are you doing, Kevin? It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you know, I've I've heard your name for a number of years. I think back probably like in 2009 I started hearing about your name with from Tim Ferriss. And he just put out a podcast recently. If everyone if, if the people listening have not listened to that three-part series yet, make sure to check it out cuz it's incredible. And I said, you know, you keep coming up in my mind. I want to bring you on and, and and bring you on in front of my audience. So I'm very excited to interview you and you're really like one of the most interesting men in the world you know i was just reading and doing a lot of research about you and i was just like i don't even know where to where to start (laughs) because there's so many interesting inspiring things about you so what i did want to start with is what i originally heard about you first which is thousand true fans i remember tim talking about this concept in this article you wrote called a thousand true fans and my brother is a the number one jazz violinist in the world And when he started kind of going out on his own as a musician, he was trying to grow his business. He was trying to get uh, fans to buy his CDs, his DVDs, you know, come show up at live events. He had music that he was creating, all these different things. And, uh, you know, I told him to check out this article and he said it was really helpful for him understanding what it means to be a performer 
and to make a full-time living. So can we talk briefly about this topic? I know you've uh, you know, talked a lot about it before, but a lot of people on my podcast are entrepreneurs or they're solo entrepreneurs. They're creative types and they're trying to build their business. They're trying to grow and make make a make a living around what they love. So can you talk about that a little bit? The idea of true fans it came out of the realization that while it's wonderful to have a million customers and audience in the you know six, seven digits, it's not absolutely necessary to to have that with today's technology. So the idea is is that if you are able to have a direct, unmediated relationship with your customers, in other words, you you had um, their emails or some way to communicate with them in a direct way, not through indirectly through like a label or a publishing house, but if you had direct relationships with those fans and, and that you were able to curate on an ongoing basis, something that they were interested in say every year or more often that you could use a plain arithmetic to actually support yourself. So the idea is, is that um, let's say you were able to sell a hundred dollars worth of something to a thousand fans, mm-hmm. a thousand true fans, that would be a hundred thousand dollars. And that's sort of a big number and selling a hundred dollars per year is a big number, but I'm just trying to give you a sense. Of course, if you did half of that, then you'd need twice as many, but between a thousand and 2000, that's, that's, you know, you, we can understand that you don't need a million fans to have a livelihood. And I define a true fan as someone who, you know, buys any version that you produce or will get the paperback, the hardcover and the ebook who <laughs> will drive 200 miles out of their way to see you sing, who, um, wants not just the, um, the CD, but wants the box set and wants, you know, people who are going to purchase and support you no matter what you do. That's your true fan. Mm. And of course, outside of that circle of true fans are kind of like just your fans. And then there's kind of, you know, the occasional people. So that's not your full audiences, but you can make the calculation that if you had a thousand of your true fans who really, really supported you, you could probably at least make a living. You're probably not going to make a fortune. And I think it was the shift of like not aiming for a fortune, but just aiming for a living. And then secondly, using the technology of today to actually have that relationship with those true fans. Because when you're selling a book through a New York publisher or through a label, you actually don't know who those fans, you don't have a relationship. They're, they're being mediated by the, the studio or the publishing house or the art gallery or whatever. So it requires that you have a direct relationship, which by the way, is not to every artist or creator's liking. I mean, <laughs> if you are basically tending your thousand true fans, that's, um, that's almost another job. I mean, that's, that's certainly yeah. another skill set, but it is another role that you have to play. So the cost of the thousand true fans is that you are, you, you have a fan base that you're interacting with and you're engaging with, and it requires a kind of a skill set to do that. If you're willing to do that and you're willing to have a livelihood and not necessarily a fortune, somewhere in the vicinity of a thousand, two thousand, five thousand, whatever it is, it's not a million. Mm-hmm. You don't need 
a bazillion fans <laughs> right. to have success. You can have a different kind of success with a more manageable number. You might even be able to recognize a thousand names. So, so, so it's in, it's in that kind of mm -hmm. scale. So what I'm trying to suggest is that there's another scale to then hit bestsellerdom. There is this other scale, which is a little bit more approachable and maybe even achievable for most people. Mm. You know, one of the things that I hear about when I'm, you know, talking to different artists or musicians is that they only want to do the art. They don't want to do the business. They don't want to do the marketing or kind of the fan um, engagement necessarily to push the business side of things. So you're, you're saying that you really got to learn that skill as well or have someone on your team to do that with you, right? Yeah, I'm saying somebody has to do someone, it. So, right. so you can either have a partner who do it and then maybe you just have to multiply everything by two because you, they sure. need to be supported. Or you hire someone who's probably not going to do as effective you, but they're going to do it pretty good. Or you employ, you know, you split basically, you you surrender that to um, professionals who are running labels and studios and broadcasters. And but then that 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 sort of uh, increases the the numbers that you need to have right. a success. So so. Um, I'm not adverse to that, to that, and I do it all different ways. I um, self-publish books, and I use publishers for books. Both are valid mm. venues, but there are, um, you know, there's a cost and there's a benefit, and you have to kind of weigh that. And different projects might require different things. I think the message for your listeners out there is that this is of, if if you want or um, if you choose this, this is a viable path. Sure. And it's also, I mean, it, it, it's actually a good path for beginning because there's no barriers. You can, mm -hmm. nobody to tell you no. Maybe after you have some success, you might want to move away from that and have someone do the stuff you don't want, which is actually a very good idea. You know, Tim and others talk about outsourcing stuff. And so that's what you're doing. And so it's not, that everyone has to do this. I'm just saying this is an option that is available and it's very easy to start when you're starting at zero. Sure. Sure. And did you, have you used this yourself for a number of different, you know, books or things starting out? Did you use this model or is this just something that you, you noticed and you saw that people could use? Originally I conceived of the ideas in theory and, and then I went to hunt for examples of people who actually were able to do that and and i have been using since i wrote i wrote it almost i think i don't know how long ago at least seven years ago right um since then i have been um using that as well we did a kickstarter program but i wasn't using it as an individual i was using it as kind of like a with some partners sure so but we, yeah we did a kickstarter campaign that was successful for a graphic novel and um trying to employ these came, same kind of things, uh, and then have self-published another book recently, which was also successful. So, I, I, I think the amount of income coming in that way is I w what I'd say would still be. If I was relying only on that, I don't think that would be enough. Mm. But I have, you know, multiple different sources of income, which is a healthy thing to do these right, days. Right. And so, um, but it's significant. So it's not insignificant. So I, I think that uh, I would say, yes, it's, it's a success. 
I don't have only a thousand true fans. And again, that's part of this concept, which is that you have your thousand true fans, but it's not like those are your only fans. Sure. Nobody, no artist, no creator will ever turn away an audience. <laughs> yeah. Right. I've got a thousand. So, I don't need any more. Thanks, guys. Exactly. <laughs> so you 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 want to have as many as you can, but you can focus on those. If if you if you focus your mind on it, you realize that you 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 don't have to have mm-hmm. a million of them. And so I, I I think it's um when you're starting off, everybody often dreams of bestseller dumb and being a hit. And I think that can be toxic for people starting out because it seems so so distant when you have a thousand or you know, say you have your Twitter and you have five hundred people, it's like well, how am I ever gonna get to a million? Well you you don't really want to get to a million, believe me. Right. So, so um, I think w- what I'm trying to to convey to people is that the the scale that you need to maybe even to be considered successful is a lot closer. And of course, if it goes beyond that, yes, you should ex- you should welcome it and and also harness that. But sure. but you you can have success at a at a much more intimate scale than we might think at first. And I would say that even as a business owner, not an artist or a creative type, but as a business owner or a freelancer, that you really only need you know ten to a hundred true fans. I mean, if you're a business owner that you have uh, clients that pay you five thousand dollars a month to do consulting right. for, you only need three of those. You know exactly. Yeah. So In fact, I tried to. I had um, my assistant and researcher try and actually uncover what the typical number of customers for a small business in America would be like, say like mm. a, rest, a restaurant or a dry cleaner or a florist or whatever at the local level. Because I suspected that in fact that um, they were in the thousands, the total number of customers that yeah. they were serving, particularly say the regular customers. Yeah. So, so um, it's probably between one and 10,000 um, mm. total customers that might support a local business. It's not millions again. Again, it's, yeah. it's, it's in it's in the thousands it's some thousands of them that that you need and that just as you said you know you don't have to be an artist you can be a business trying to support a family or or a small group of people and um you again don't need a lot you can take your energy and really focus on you know developing those relationships of a of a much fewer number hmm. and if if you, they become your true fans, is w- which is what you want. So you basically want to turn customers into true fans. Right, right, exactly. I like that. Now, you know, the, have you seen the Dos Equis commercials, The Most Interesting Man in the World? Have you seen those? I'm sorry, I haven't. I don't have TV. So. <laughs> there are these great commercials called The Most Interesting Man in the World, and he's traveling the world. He's got all these one-liners that are, you know, hilarious and, um, do, you know, does everything extraordinary the most interesting man in the world. And basically what I'm trying to say is they should have casted you as that role because (laughs) as I looked at your bio, I was just like, this literally is the most interesting man in the world and you've just done so much. And so what I want to ask is what is your favorite, you know, people, when people say, so what do you do, Kevin, what's your favorite hat or title that you like to wear? I should say, and, or what do you like to talk about the most? Those are kind of probably two separate answers, but the the most common um, description of say my profession or my role is is actually as editor, and 
I mentioned that because um, that is what I enjoy doing the most. Mm. Um, I do write, but I hate writing. I don't like to. <laughs> I mean, I don't. It's painful. It's, I, like, I, like, I like having written. Isn't that what most writers like doing to say they uh, well, have no, written? No, I have I have some friends who actually like that and, and and are only happy when they're writing, but that's not me. I am only <laughs> happy when I'm editing, and and packaging stuff and cutting stuff out and rearranging and I mean I, I can do I, and it's not just writing. It's like when I'm editing images or making a, working in design, designing pages and putting things together. That's when I could just get into the zone and I could do that for eight hours and not even be aware of it. Mm. So that's, that's what I love to do is, um, that process that we, in the word Smith called, um, editing, but it's, it's really, um, packaging ideas, yeah. whether it's a PowerPoint, a brochure, a website, um, a book, that's what I'm happy in doing. What is it about packaging that you enjoy the most? Over that's everything a, else, it's a good question. Um, let me think about that. I've never been asked that. So, um, take your time. I think it's the here's what it is. One of the reasons why I do write is is through writing that I learn what I think, and the same process of editing by having by putting things together and packaging it requires me to actually have an opinion, to have a point of view. To have an idea, there has to be there's structure. This is all about structuring. One one of the huge lessons about magazine editing is that the entire success of an article is really in the structure of the article, um, how how it comes about, what's the sequence, what's the logic, what's the flow, stuff that you're really not even aware of when you're reading it. In fact, if you are aware of it, it means it's probably not working because it's sticking up. And so you want this structure that's invisible and yet is propelling something along and so they think well that's fantastic and they don't even notice the editing but it was through the editing that it actually made it work and that to do that requires you to have a, a very sophisticated or a very sound mastery of the thing at hand and and so there's there's a, there's it kind of forces me to comprehend the material it's a way it's a way of comprehension. So it's like the old dictum that you can't really teach something unless you understand it or by teaching it you understand it. So yep. it's it's a form of teaching and it's a it's a means for me to try and understand something. So that's what I get through the packaging, it's the joy of understanding it. Mm, interesting. So there are a lot of things that you actually edit that you don't know originally and then they and then you're able to dive into it and learn more about it as you're editing and researching it. Is that part of the process? Yeah. So let's say I'm doing, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm editing. Uh, I mean, I think this would be true of, uh, this is something I haven't done, but I'm going to make a guess. If you're editing um, some music, right? So, so, so the, the understanding is not like, it's not like a conceptual news, but to, to edit music and, and you know produce what they call producing to produce a song in the end with the hooks and the and the music and all the accompaniment to make it really good you have to in some ways not only kind of comprehend what the song is about but you you're offering a point of view about it you're offering some opinion in shaping that melody into this 
song and editing and saying, well, this doesn't belong here. This does. It's, there's no right answer in that sense. It's a kind of an expression, but you are coming away with something big and unifying it from all these parts. And so there is, it requires that you have a, a stance it requires mm-hmm. that you have. And so that, that it's that stance that is brought out that was not there when I began. So it often comes in the process of putting something together. Mm. When you go to any website, if you pick up something about that website, like instantly, you don't know what it is. There's a atmosphere, a feeling, a personality, something cool, whatever it is. If that's working and that's deliberate, that was put into there by, by the design that was, that was engineered into it to, to give you that, whatever that feeling was. Well, often before, that began nobody really i mean that that idea would only come about in some process of creating it that that's sort of the beauty of of creating it is is that it often takes the act of creating it for the idea to emerge often it's not there at the very beginning you know someone's writing a script for a pixar movie it's not until the very end when everybody has signed off and everything has been done (laughs) that everybody really understands what it's about right see it's like i mean i always joke about like a book. It's like I, I said, I always wished that um, I could have could write the book after I do the book tour. Because <laughs> after the book tour, then I realize what the book is about. Right? <laughs> that would be a good time to write it because <laughs> when I'm writing it, I didn't know what it was about. Mm. Okay, so, so this process, and, and it's that larger scale process of assembling all these pieces and creating it out of nothing and, it's, and more than just the words, but everything else, that process is the process that actually makes it alive and makes it um, worthwhile. Mm. And it's not just the, the moment of, of creation, but it's the moment of, of synthesizing it with all the other pieces that mm. are necessary and then putting a stamp of a, that unifies it overall. This, sure. this, that, that is the higher level of editing. So when I talk about editing, I'm not talking about like correcting grammar. That's, that is type that's called line editing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this idea of um, putting it into the flow. Yeah, exactly. M- yeah. Putting in context. Mm. So, so, so what you're trying to do is you're trying to situate this new thing that you've made, whether it's a photograph, a film, a song, or a web app. You're trying to situate it in the context of everything else that exists out there, and shows how it relates to the rest of things in people's lives and why it may offer them something, a different point of view that they didn't have before. Sure. Do you have a specific process that you uh, follow for each thing that you edit or, you know, let's say produce? Is it, or is it different with writing an article or in a magazine or your website or a book or do you, how do you get in the zone and then the flow to create? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a fair and useful question. I think um, I have some tricks i would call or heuristics that the programmers would would use that word kind of rules of thumb one of the and then i have a style which is sort of independent of that i I, my style is a minimalist i i like Hmm. a a very uh, minimal style of trying to do the maximum with the least amount of intervention or guidance and so in terms of even visual design, I, w- I would go like, you know, what, how much of this can I take away and still have it work? And if something is there, it has to absolutely be doing some useful work. That's not everybody's style. It's all people like decorative and they like to, to <laughs> fill in things. And actually, I can enjoy that too. 
but that, when I create, I'm on the minimalist style, and that's and that's true for the number of words I'm using, you know, um, you know how it's presented, whatever. But some of the tricks in trying to 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 bring this to process is my role is I'm always trying to service the the viewer, the reader, the watcher, the listener. So I'm 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 trying to be empathetic with the receiver and and saying, do I Will they get it? Do I get it? Mm. So, so when I'm if I'm editing something that's not my own, I'm representing the, the other and saying I don't understand this, and if I don't understand it, they won't. <laughs> right. um, but when you're trying to do your own work, the heuristic I'm always asking myself is, what am I trying to do here? What 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 am I? What is this little piece trying to accomplish? And if it isn't doing something, then I remove it, and or alter it. And so there's always – so every part should be working towards something. And so you're constantly asking yourself, what am I trying to do now? What is this about? Does this move it forward in any way? And that's sort of this recurring question that you're always asking. It's not like, what, is it pretty? No, that doesn't matter. <laughs> is it does, it – does it sound cool? No, that doesn't matter. It's always like, is it moving the – thing towards uh, a goal and then right. what is the goal so that that alone is probably the the, the main job right. that, that that you're always asking right now i want to ask you have you ever thought about actually doing a book tour six months or a year before actually launching a book and doing what you just said where you're talking about what you want to talk about but then really discovering what the book is going to be about through the conversations of the book tour yes and i have Really? And how did it go? Well, here's what I did. Is I gave talks about it. Ah. I made a, um, I, I started giving talks. I did that with the New Rules book. I, I, I was giving talks for almost a year or more before I even wrote an article. And then I wrote an article as a way of kind of outlining the book. And so, yes, that was the easiest in many ways because for almost a year beforehand, I, was, I knew what, exactly what it was about. And I highly recommend that, by the way, is mm. because when I first get, started giving a talk, I didn't know what it was, but I got <laughs> this constant feedback over time. I evolved it so that when I came to write a book, it was like, yeah, I know. I mean, it's like I just sat down and wrote it. It was like the easiest compared to the, my other ones. I mean, again, I, I, I have difficulty writing fast, but it, for me, it was the easiest one for me to write. Now, did you end up taking uh, pre-orders during those speeches? No, this was in another era. This was in the 90s. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, was a, it was a New York publisher. It was Penguin. Uh-huh. And I, I tell you, it's really hard to imagine how backwards I had to fight to get them to accept my manuscript as a digital manuscript and not re-keyboard it. Mm. Okay. I mean, can you imagine that? Right. <laughs> So, 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 so this was definitely, um, a, a different time and there wasn't any, any, any thought of that, mm. um, that now, of course I would, I would do things like pre-orders and, uh, sure. and things like that. Sure. And how many books have you, have you written and published and also self-published? Well, I, you know, I don't know, maybe, uh, 15 or so in total. I have done a lot of self-publishing at a very small scale and, I also do things where um, I do a lot of travel and on most journeys I actually produce a book after the journey, which goes to anybody who's, all, who's on the journey with me. They're kind of private books. 
Huh. And so, uh, and some of those journeys, like we've had 16 people and stuff. So I think some of the people come just because they want the book at the end. Right. Um, so, so I, I, I'm a unabashed obsessive bookmaker making lots of books that, um, aren't even available for sale. Um, I have others that have self published at the very small scale and sold on Amazon. I'm making more eBooks now. And then I'm, I am publishing books on paper. So right as we speak, I'm finishing a huge, I mean, physically large, <laughs> many pages. It's a 464 oversized paged graphic, graphic novel. Wow. And what's that uh, called? It's called the silver cord and it's about angels and robots. And it's about a half angel, half human girl who discovers that the newly conscious, the robots who are going to be newly conscious with a quantum computer chip inside them, that their souls are going to come from dark angels. And so she has to save the world from them. Mm, interesting. And, um, yeah. So we're getting kind of rehearsing the implications of what happens if robots have souls. And um, it's a coming-of-age story, and it's an epic saga about the million different species of angels in the other world. And so it's, anyways, it's a great, great <laughs> thing. This was the Kickstarter um, campaign, and uh, that's going off to the press probably next week. It'll wow. Be Hong Kong. Congratulations. But, but in addition to the book going to the backers all, the book is also going to go in onto amazon and bookstores and so i'm serving as the publisher and we're having extra copies printed and you know it's it's it'll be a self-published book available to anybody out there who was listening who wasn't part of the kickstarter fund you'll be able to buy it at um, on amazon or or a bookstore and that that's again something that would not have been even thinkable five or six years ago. Mm. First of all, Amazon, you know, makes it really easy, and then you know, InDesign and tools like that um, make designing these things really possible. A lot of the people who are working on the, the artists, we are hired through Deviant Art, which is a website on the internet that artists, young artists, comic book artists can put their portfolios up, mm, I like and that's that. how. That's how we found the artists who we've Devi never met. DeviantArt.com? DeviantArt, yeah. Okay. Interesting. And so we actually have been you know, we hired on DeviantArt. And then the kind of globalization um, of printing it in Hong Kong, where, I mean, we wanted to print in the U.S., but it was not, no U.S. printer could actually, no, can they no longer can, can print at that um, wow. art scale. But, but you know, it, um, working with Hong Kong is... And working with China is really no no big barrier anymore. Like Alibaba and places like that yeah. make it easier to have um, a one-person global corporation. Sure. So um, uh, that's one thing. And then the other thing that I'm proudest of is a book that I just finished before this called Cool Tools, which was entirely self-published. Again, another very, very large, oversized catalog of cool tools what type of tools tools in the broadest sense from you know the best pair of pliers to you know the uh, the best glue gun to tools that you could rent like a 
bulldozer or a wet saw <laughs> cut tile. People don't realize that you don't really have to buy these things. You can rent almost any tools, and some of them are pretty cool, like a you know a auger or you know um, huge auger for post hole digging or um, something that will like a laser cutter. Sure. And the other kind of tools are tools in the broader sense of being things that are useful. Like I, I think that Meetup, the the web based tool that allows you to coordinate and start physical meetups in your lo locality is is an incredible tool for anything you're trying to do with a group of people mm -hmm. it's it, it just makes um self-scheduling people who are interested can kind of self-schedule the 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 gatherings it's 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 just it's just a really fantastic tool for communities that's a tool sure um and then so, tools can range from how-to books how to videos, how to how to build a house, how to build a log cabin, how to um, sail around the world, live on a boat. Those are all tools. And so basically anything that's useful for self-education or useful in making things or making things happy is a cool <laughs> I like that. So that's gonna be so the book is coming out soon, but you also have a website for this as well? No. So the book is out. It's book called is out. Cool Tools. The book is out. It was based on a website that's still going. It's called Cool Tools. It's been going for 11 years. Wow. Or 12 years at this point. Every every weekday we review one cool tool and there's something about that. One is that all the tools are written by users. Mm. Actual users are not like a lot of these gadget blogs. They, they're not using them. They're just pointing. They sound cool. They, they point to it. No one's ever used them. <laughs> Ours are all tools that people have actually used and loved, and at best they are comparing them to others. And then secondly, we only have positive reviews. We only re review things that are great. We don't bother negative reviews. Do we, you know, if it doesn't work, we're not even going to mention it. Sure. It's like life is too short. Well, why not just deal with the best? So right. we have only recommendations is, is basically the way to think about it. And so um, – we took the best of those 10 years worth of recommendations and went back and reevaluated them and put them into a book with there's about 1,500 wow. different things from, you know, the best foldable ladder to the best foldable bike to, um, you know, you know, stuff that will help you, uh, uh, study, but you know, I don't know how to, you know, disappear, improve anything, improve anything or how to, Grow edible mushrooms, you know. Um, <laughs> nice. Publish an ebook, or maybe you want to heat your house with wood, or maybe you want to design your own fabric. So here's a place that can print fabric in small runs. You know, you you design it, it'll it'll make um, mm. a fabric, or um, how to put on a house concert. If again, if you're a musician and you want to, uh, one alternative these days to either playing in bars or even playing in stadiums is you. Or played uh, people, your true fans will they'll set up a concert in their home for twenty people. They'll collect the money from all their friends and they give the money to you, and you play a very intimate twenty twenty five people in someone's home. And those are called house concerts, and the, and you can set up a little tour. So anyway, you can learn how to about learn how to do those kinds of things. So it's um, almost it's tools for anything 
that people want to make or want to make happen. And I think uh, it'll greatly appeal to your readers. It's available on Amazon. Sure. It's, it's a huge oversized book. It weighs five, <laughs> pa- weighs five pounds. It's in color. Wow. And anybody who's of a certain age will recognize the style as the old Holworth catalogs. Okay. Uh, if you're young, that won't mean anything to you, so just ignore it. <laughs> uh, but this was this was a um, publication that I used to work for. It was it was the first user generated content for the hippies, mm. um, and it was a catalog of tools that were very hard to find um, at that time, like um, you know to to grind your own flour or to um, uh, you know build your own log cabin in the woods um people would look at this catalog and it would give them the right information to do that interesting i like it sounds like a cool book it is <laughs> cool cool tools cool tools i'll make sure to link that up on the show notes now you describe yourself as a college dropout yeah. and uh, a self-given phd in asian studies right mm-hmm. yeah so you left school and then you went to asia and traveled around with a, a camera and wandered for a bit and, and got your own PhD. So how did you know that, I guess, college wasn't for you and that, that this was your path to learn in a different way? Yeah. Well, again, the context is, this is 1969 or so. Mm. Um, I, went to, uh, I went to a school in the sub, suburb of New York, New Jersey, where people had moved to this town because the schools were good. 98% of my classmates were going to college. It was not really even an option at that point not to go. But I was interested in, um, I couldn't decide whether to go to art school or MIT. I was interested in art and science. And um, at that time, there were it was a kind of a binary choice. You either went to college and you suffered through classroom work. <laughs> Or you didn't. There was no interning, project-oriented gap year, any of this kind of stuff. And mentorships, so, um, yeah. mentorship had all that existed. I probably would have stayed, but at that time, it was grade thirteen. It was it was another year of sitting in a classroom, and at that age, I needed to make something or do something. Mm. And um, I think a lot of people coming out of high school can kind of resonate with that. You're you're just so you just want to make something happen. The idea of sitting in a classroom again for some more book work, uh, it just wasn't working for me. And it wasn't as if I had, I didn't really even have an alternative other than I knew that I wanted to do something, I wanted to make something. So I was interested in photography. I dropped out and um, went to a photography commune. It was kind of a live, it was a farm taken over by a bunch of photographers. We had our own dark rooms collectively, we cooked together slept together basically and what it was was um uh we were all doing photography at that time which was black and white and the big format where you develop your own film and prints and all that kind of stuff and you critique each other very ruthlessly and constructively but um that was the kind of thing that i that i wanted to do and so i just knew that i i could not survive um you know four years sitting in in a classroom um i only happened to go to Asia because I had a best friend who was studying Chinese in Taiwan. I wanted to be a National Geographic photographer. Mm. He invited me to come over while he was there. And, um, you know, I, I called up National Geographic 
I called up one of the editors, photo editors, found his name in the you know, directory, whatever it was. And I called him up and said, I'm going to Taiwan. Do you need any pictures? And he said, well, that's not how we do it here. <laughs> <laughs> but when you come back, show me your stuff. Wow. And um, so I set off. I had, you know, a, the minimal, cheapest, dumbest camera. I had a lot of film. And I started going. And then I, and, and I, when I was in Taiwan, I um, met two Swiss travelers they were not tourists they were travelers which is what they were called and they were saying they well, they just come from the philippines and they just come from indonesia before that and then india and and i said well who invited you he said you don't need to be invited you just go <laughs> you don't need to know anybody you just show up and that was like that was a revelation to me i'd never been out of New England. I'd never met anybody who traveled. This is a very different world um, at that time. And um, so I just, you know, I went to the Philippines and I went to the, you know, I went to the next country there and I, and I realized that you could just go and it wasn't that expensive <laughs> at the time. And I was photographing, making this book in my head. And um, I discovered that there was this world in Asia where everything was done on the street. It was, it was like turned inside out instead of everything kind of happening inside the back rooms or inside closed things. Everything was open. There was, they were there. They actually literally would make stuff in the street in their, in, in their kind of, uh, they have these, um, they were not like a garage. It was like a, a place that would be open on one side and they had no inhibitions about me just walking up and watching them work. And they were very glad. And so I could see how things were made. I could see, how everything happened and one thing led to another and I just um, became addicted to learning new stuff very intensely every day by just um, hanging around Asia, which was transforming before my eyes because you could see not only the ways it had not changed in a thousand years and then I could turn around and see the future, which was, you know, they were erecting, you know, Asia was just, becoming the future, becoming some of the fastest changing cities. Cities, there would be like a rice fields one year, and then the next year there would be a city there just about. Mm. Shenzhen is this huge city, bigger than New York City, that did not exist 20 years ago. So that was the education that I got, which was um, both seeing how the old world worked, understanding how medieval minds and places like Afghanistan, which were literally living in the 15th century, to, you know, Japan and Tokyo, which was this postmodern place where they were ahead in many ways of, of their use of technology. And for me, that was better than any college degree I could have ever gotten. Better than sitting in a classroom for four years? Yeah, I'm afraid so. <laughs> now, do you believe in higher education today for you know people coming out of high school? Yeah, so you're in uh, yeah. you're up near San Francisco, correct? So that's a question that we had to, I had to answer in a very direct way because I have three children. Yeah. So the thing I told them was, look, uh, you're graduating from high school. Here's here's the deal: is you here are some of your options. You, uh, if you have a project that you want to do, or if you want to make something or if you have, if you actually have a very detailed uh, reason to to travel whatever it is we'll support you for four years but but you have to have a very concrete p- 
plan or, or a project to work on, something very, very specific. And if you don't have that, then you have to go to college. Oh. And so then, co- college was a second choice. It was like, okay. Wow. Um, but you have to do, you cannot just um, hang around and sit around and, and play to, video games. Right. And think about what you might want to do. So right. if you have something you really want to do, no matter what it is, we'll support you. But if you don't, then you have to go to college. Interesting. So what did your children end up doing? Yeah, they all copped out and went to college. No way. Yeah. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I they, 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 unlike me, they didn't have a, a passion that they really wanted to pursue. They decided that they didn't know what they wanted to do, so they wanted to take some time to... Still in discovery. But now, one of my daughters, the second daughter, has since graduated, she's doing what we call her gap life, which is that she's she's um, on her own. She's, you know, we're not supporting her, but she has been traveling around the world working as a web developer as she travels. So she's been supporting herself in as she goes around from, you know, Greece, islands of Greece and Bulgaria to, you know, Cambodia, Vietnam, wherever, Japan. And she's working with her boyfriend as web developers along the way. That's and interesting. That's, and that's amazing to me. So she, you know, instead of doing that, she did, she's doing that now, but she did go to uh, four years. Sure. I would say that, you know, my college experience, it took me like six years to finish. And I left for a while to go play uh, professional football, then came back just to graduate to please my mom. And I would say that I didn't really learn anything from the classes, but I learned a lot about people and mm-hmm. uh, relationships and just working hard that the experience was a great learning experience, but the information I learned in the classes was really irrelevant for me. That's that's true for, I mean, I would say that's a pretty typical response about, it was the friends and networks, the relationships and the, the people skills that, that they, people learn. But, yeah. but what, I mean, and of course that's in a world that changes as fast as ours is and where careers change as fast. It's very unlikely. In fact, when I was at Wired, I was, I did a lot of hiring as we were growing very fast. And so I had a lot of um, college graduates coming in and um, looking for work and the kind of heuristics that, that we used, which I think is now pretty common in Silicon Valley, which is that we hired for, attitude not for skills mm. okay it was sort of like um whatever skills you had are probably not the skills that we need <laughs> right but but what's your positive attitude attitude meaning like how how are you a fast learner how do you learn sure. um uh, uh and then you know are you are are you easy to work with um those are the your character those are the things that are much more important and they, they can be developed, as you said, in, in, in college, and you have opportunities for that. But I don't think it's only in college that you could develop those. Right. So, so it's um, – by the way, one of the things that I had – there was a couple of people who came to Wired um, as interns were good enough that we hired them and were still there when I left. And I kept telling them, why are you here? I don't understand it. You're like 20, you know, whatever – and you're you worked right out of college, and you're still working. It's like when you're young, you should be wasting time somewhere. You should be wasting in the sense that you should just be pursuing something, not trying to make a living. You should be exploring. You mm. should be 
trying stuff that fail, this is the time to do that. You, you shouldn't be in a career yeah. um, with a down payment and a mortgage <laughs> or whatever it is that you are. You should really be trying crazy stuff right now. Mm. and learning um, new skills yeah taking taking chances and um not trying to optimize uh your strengths per se but you should be kind of exploring you should be exploring rather than to optimize and i think there's a, a tension there between everybody every artist every creative person between optimizing what you know and exploring what you don't and I think some of the people I met that were kind of going through college, you know, on kind of like a schedule, graduating, getting your job, and proceeding up the ladder, that that to me had more optimization in it than it did exploring. Mm. And so there was that needed to balance that with taking some more chances, doing stuff that had a lower success rate, and were crazier. And you know, I, I think that's part of what you should be doing while you, while you're young. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned how you know everything is changing so much, so much faster now, uh, and what you learn in school probably is going to be irrelevant, uh, you know, in a few years later, based on your your environment and your changes that you're making. And I, you wrote an article, I believe it was called Amish Hackers. Correct me if I'm wrong, um, but in this article about Amish, you talk about uh, you describe the use of technology or the lack of and the debate about in the Amish community. And you, and you wrote, uh, or you quoted an Amish man saying that the problem with phones, pagers, and PDAs was that you got messages rather than conversations. And what are, you, what are your thoughts on modern technology or technology today? And do you think it has set us back in any way from connecting and having real conversations with humans? Well, I have, I have, I think there's, I think I have the kind of same two minds about this flood of technology that most people have, which is there are some things about it that we want to embrace and we can't help but embrace. And it's like, yeah, bring it on. And at the same time, we're really kind of cautious about not letting it take over. And I think that's baked into our inherent relationship of humans and technology that is going to be true for the next 10,000 years, which is that we are both the parents of, the, of, of technology and the children of it at the same time. We are both the masters and the slave at the same time. So both these relationships where we are making technology and it's also inevitable that that tension is inherent in the technology will always be there and we're always going to feel it. So, so I would say that there's two, two things going on in our heads, which is, uh, yeah, this is really cool. This is great. It makes me more productive. I can do things they can ever do. And oh my gosh, I've got to stop doing this. <laughs> and so um, I think there is no formula for, there's no escape from that paradox. And um, we just have to accept that it's going to be there and we have to kind of manage those. And, and here's what I know is that we're going to have different answers to this paradox at different sure. times in our life, at different times of the week. And the What's it, what I wrote about the Amish, what's interesting about the Amish, the untold story that, that most people don't know about them, is that they are not Luddites. They have not rejected technology at all. They have just, they're just very selective in the stuff that they use, and they have a surprising mix of things. Mm. And so it's not, so they're not like saying no Against to technology. everything, yeah. They are just saying yes. They're saying no, 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 yes, no, 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 yes. They're saying yes <laughs> 
in a very deliberate way because they have a criteria for how they uh, select and, and, and what they use. But sure. the point is that they're not rejecting it. And so um, one thing about the technology is that anybody who's going to give this all up, I just, there's nobody who does that. Right. No one gives it all up. Okay. Sure. And there's very few who even give up substantial portions of it for very long. And I think that's actually okay. So one of the things that I promote is the idea of either vacations from technology or Sabbaths from technology mm. or sabbatical. So it's okay to stop using it for a while, but understand that you're going to come back. And and many, that, have you done that before with technology? Yes. And, yes. and what did yes. you experience during those? How long were those periods for and what did you experience? Well, so our kids, and we still don't have a TV at our house, but we have, and I was one of the first subscribers to Netflix. I mean, when it first launched. Mm -hmm. So no TV, but Netflix from the beginning. So we could enjoy the, some of the content. And it wasn't like we had anything against the content, but we can enjoy it. We, we, we could manage the format and the delivery. So it was on our, it was on demand versus whenever they wanted to show it. We, we could watch it on our demand. And people understand that now, but we were doing that very early. And that transformed the context. And so for a long time, I didn't, uh, I didn't have a cell phone. And um, that was because they didn't want to be on the leash. When people, when I was, you know, at the call of anybody who wanted to call, um, smartphones and the ability to kind of filter and do those kinds of things changed that for me. So now I do. You know, I didn't have, I didn't own a car for long, long to had a, a bicycle only. Um, and a lot of people in New York City still don't have cars. So, so, but they might later on. So, so it's not that they have anything against cars. It's just that cars weren't working for them at that time. They now with Uber and zip cars and stuff, that's a viable option. Sure. So there isn't, we have sabbaticals, um, and Sabbaths and that's, there's actually a growing trend to do a Sabbath, which is like one day a week you go offline or either you, you either you darn online or you don't use a keyboard or you don't use a screen. There's different ways people do it, but it's very healthy to, step away once a week because when you return you can return with greater enthusiasm and perspective mm, and like energy so it's not like you're stopping you're not using it once a week because it's horrible you're stopping once a week because it's so good <laughs> right and so right. that anyone who's talking about well i'm going to do this because it's toxic or that it's addictive and all this kind of stuff i think that's the wrong framing what you want to talk about is stepping away because it's so good, because mm. it's so powerful, because it's, 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 it's so sweet because it is so, um, rich that you, that's why you want to step, not because it's so mm. evil. I like that. Now I'm curious about, you've done all these amazing, incredible things since after college or the one year of college. And you've, again, the most interesting man in the world. You've got so many different titles and books and a lot of different amazing things that you've created. But what I want to know is what was the biggest fear that you overcame growing up, you know, in your childhood from five to 15? Did you have any major fears that you really took on and overcame? And if so, what were those? Yeah, um, I had a really happy childhood. I, I kind of um, had had very supportive parents, though, uh, for a long time, my father and I, who was 
you know, World War II, straight arrow. Um, we went through the 60s. That was a very turbulent time. He was, um, he didn't get the hippie part of me at all. And I think the one obstacle that I had was probably my father. Um, not that he didn't support me, but that he um, it took him a long time to kind of um, come around to accept my unorthodox uh, approach. And so that took a long time to kind of overcome, but uh, uh, it, it did. So, and I also, I was one of five kids and I was the oldest of five kids, I should say. And, and I didn't necessarily, uh, wasn't advocating that my brothers and sisters all follow my unorthodox path either. So I had some concern about, uh, I mean, I wasn't a preacher. I wasn't trying to preach anything, but I think, I, I, I was never really governed by fear very much. I, I think I, I, I had, I had an, um, a hope of um, doing something that was significant or that people would appreciate. And I think when you're young and starting off, like myself, I was a, I was a nobody. I, 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 I had no kind of a um, portfolio or anything. So, so I think maybe trying to be accepted or, um, in some ways appreciated was the thing that I worked mm. on the most. Mm. And that took, frankly, it took a, a long time. It took 20 years. And, and, and I think a lot of people will relate to this because I was creating things and working on things for all that time without really much recognition and I think what I kind of started to do was really making stuff because I wanted it to be made, mm. hoping that other people would appreciate it, but really trying to, in some sense, you know, make it for myself, make it, and, and kind of accepting that, in fact, no one ever, you know, no one else may ever buy this or whatever, but I want to make something that I enjoyed making and I enjoyed having done and I was proud of. And I think and not paying attention to the money very much because I didn't have hmm. money. Um, I had more time than money, but I, I kind of was resigned to the fact that I'm not going to have any money, but I just really wanted to kind of do it right. So the book of Asian photographs that I always wanted to do, it took me almost, I don't know, at least 20 more years until the technology came along where I could do it on my own. Because if I was, you know, the way, photo books were done before you had to become a big famous photographer, which mm. I was not, but I waited until the technology came along where I could do a book and make it myself and I didn't right. have to be famous. Right. And I think that's why I'm so enthusiastic about the technology today, because I think it can enable people like myself who are trying to create things and you can, you don't have to get other people's permission to, to do this and to, and to make copies of it. You, you, you don't have to, wait until someone says yes you can just go and do it mm, i like that well i know you've got a you're writing another book right now so i've only I got have. i've only got two more questions for you okay but i want to make sure everyone goes and checks out cool tools and go to kk.org you've got a lot of the links that you've got there i'll link it up on the show notes as well over on uh, the podcast show notes um, but the final two questions one is uh what are you most grateful for recently mm. I love that because I think um, gratitude is what powers our humanity and our place in the cosmos. And, um, 
you know, I we, we say a blessing at every meal, what we're grateful for. And, and there's so many things. I have to say that I remain grateful that I'm still in good health. Um, and I am grateful for the for my kids who um, are not in jail. And, um, you know, basically, <laughs> they, they, they came out okay. And um, specifically, more specifically than that, um, I have an opportunity to, to travel, to still travel. And um, I go to China a lot where I have a lot of fans. And I am really grateful that I have the opportunity to do that because I can traveling is still my biggest teacher. I still is still the most intense uh, mode of learning that I know about. And I really, you know, I try to get out of the cities into the country and there's, I mean, it's just, it's just one huge university there. Hmm. And so, um, I, I have the privilege of being able to do that on a frequent basis. And I'm really grateful for that. Hmm. I like that. And by the way, I should let people know that there's two ways to travel. You have a lot of money or a lot of time. And of the two, it's better to have a lot of time. You actually don't need a lot of money to to travel to distant and exotic places. You may think you do, but there are many ways to do that without a lot of money. And if you have a lot of time, it can always make up for money. And so um, if you're willing to put some time, it will always reward whatever time you invest into it. Mm -hmm. Any resources on uh, the best way to travel that you like? There's a couple of really good books. Um, I like uh, Potts, uh, Ralph Potts, I think, his Vagabonding series. Yep. There's another book on, um, well, I mean, there's there's things like, uh, there's practical things like the um, Lonely Planet Thorn Tree Forums. Lonely Planet books you know about. The Thorn Tree Forums are the kind of places where, you know, people who are on, they're in Laos at the border are saying, yes, the border is open right here. And it takes, you know, three hours to do it. This is how you do it. And so you get on the ground, immediate currency. And that's really good for, um, that's a great resource that I use a lot for trying to find out, you know, what's, what, 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 you know, the guidebooks are a couple of years out. This is like weeks old. And there's also, um, there's a couple, uh, I'm trying to think of the name. There's a couple websites. I think it's called, uh, Blue Wing, let me thinking, where you where the um, mileage hackers hang out. Sure, yeah, to get the so, free flights and all that type of yeah, things. right. Yeah. There's all kinds of tricks and things. Some of them are more troublesome than others, <laughs> but the idea there is that you can um, it's kind of travel hacking a little bit about how to rack up miles that you can then turn into flights because sure. that is that is the um, the biggest expense usually for these kinds of remote places where it's very cheap. There is actually a book I recommend in Cool Tools called The um, Cheapest Destinations. So it's like his philosophy is um, if you're going to travel, why not go to the places where you get the best buck, or best bang for your buck? Sure. And so he kind of um, did a little list of the places that have the best bargains for your for your dollar. And there's also a book called uh, World Stoppers, which is for the really low end travelers, and I, I define that as for the travelers who don't care where they sleep at all. I mean, it's like, you know, <laughs> if you have to kind of camp out somewhere or couch surf or you, where you're not that picky about where you sleep, then this is a book for you because it's kind of, it's like rock bottom, absolute cheapest way to go. Mm. That's not my style anymore. 
Right. Um, you like to have a nice bed. Well, you know, I had <laughs> yeah, so much a bed, but it's kind of something without bed bugs. Let me put that way. <laughs> I hear you. <ya. laughs> so that's, that's another resource in the Cool Tools book uh, or the website. Awesome. Okay. Very cool. Thank you for those uh, tips. And yep. the final question, which is the question I ask all my guests, is what is your definition of greatness? Yeah, good. First of all, I think greatness is overrated. Okay. Greatness is we calmly define it or in a kind of a celebrity way. Every person that I know who has a reputation for being great was a deeply flawed character. <laughs> sure. Okay. And in a certain sense, the, uh, greatness is another term for extreme and they're extreme. So, so they have their, their characters are extreme, which means that they often have very extreme. They're unbalanced in a certain sense. So mm. they're not, they're not rounded. They're angular. And I'm not saying uh, we shouldn't seek out to be great, but I'm just saying that in a certain sense, it's not all that it's cracked up to be because it comes along with a lot of other, there's a price to it. And the price is that is that you are extreme. Sure. And so, you know, Steve Jobs is a great example, a person that I have, you know, I, can, I was not his friend, but I met him on numerous occasions and he was a brilliant jerk. So... <laughs> He was brilliant. He was a jerk. Right. So the, the, those were linked in his case by the nature of his thing. So, so you know, he really should not be anyone's really role model as a whole. And I think what the way I would maybe define greatness or the kind of greatness that I'm seeking is a specificity to my life, so that you're a, a, in the class of one and what a lot of people do is they're trying to make themselves, you know, whether they want to be a Michael Jordan or mm -hmm. a Michael Jackson or Tiger Woods, or Tiger Woods or a Bill Gates or somebody like that. They're basically, they're they're participating in someone else's movie. And I think what you really want to do is you want to star in your own movie, mm. and that's very, very, very difficult to do um, because we don't know what our movie is about. I mean. And it'll take you basically all your life to figure out what your movie is about. So, so it's an constantly, it's an ongoing process. But to me, uh, the way I would define to answer your question, greatness is that it's, it means that you are in a class of one and it's not so much whether you are the most brilliant or the most, whatever the, the, the superlative is, it's, it's the fact of, whether you're being kind of really um, developing that blend that you have that nobody else has. And from afar, that may not seem great because maybe what you have is the, you know, the ability to empathize with people or maybe you have an extreme sensitivity to poverty and others or something that may take you away from center stage. Mm. But in my book, you, you actually might, you know, you, you might not stand out in a certain sense in a crowd, but you would still be great because there would be no one else like you. And I think that's being unimitable is probably closer to the idea of, of greatness in my mind, where it's like, yeah, that he, he or she, there's like, they're the one and only. Nobody may know them out of their neighborhood, but but no one will ever forget them either because they are just, they have sort of maximized who they were. And who they were is this weird combination of stuff, but they have really kind of, they have managed to 
to bring that to the front and star in their own movie. Mm, I love that's a great definition. So thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you for asking such great questions and for um, being a great listener. Thanks to your podcast listeners for giving me attention. And um, I hope I said something that was useful to them. That was great. Yeah, I loved your wisdom and I appreciate it. And we'll have everything linked up in the show notes. So thank you great. so much, Kevin. Good thing. There you have it, guys. Thank you so much for joining me today. And again, if this is your first time joining uh, the School of Greatness podcast, welcome to the podcast. Feel free to subscribe over on iTunes.com slash School of Greatness. Leave me a review. Let me know what you think about the show and uh, check out some other episodes as well. And again, if uh, you are listening to this episode, share it with one friend that you think could find some uh, enlightenment or be inspired by this, email it to that individual, that friend, and cc me, lewis at lewishouse.com. I'd love to see uh, why you send it to them and what you want them to get out of this interview. So again, send it to one friend and cc me on the email, lewis at lewishouse.com. I am very grateful for all of you for listening, for subscribing. We're at episode number 97. Can you believe it? Almost 100 episodes, and I started this in the end of January 2013. So make sure to check out this specific uh, show over at lewishouse.com slash 97. We're gaining on 100 very soon, so I'm excited to uh, share with you guys what is coming next. There's a lot of great things coming next. So Thank you so much for joining me today. You know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great.